Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Hey, welcome back to another installment of Secret Records, where we end up covering stuff off our beaten path. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the fourth and most recent season of Fargo. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Brent to give us a quick synopsis and then a discussion on the season. All right, so on this episode, we'll be talking, as Kaylin just said, about the fourth season of Fargo, which is set in Kansas City, Missouri in 1950 and serves as a direct prequel to the second season. The story follows two crime families vying for control of the Kansas City underworld. The first is the Italian-American mafia led by Donatello Fada and then by his son, Josto. And the second is an African-American syndicate led by Loy Cannon. In the middle of this conflict is an unstable, sinister nurse, Orietta Mayflower, a young, intelligent biracial girl named Ethelita Smutney, and a pair of lesbian outlaws named Zelmer Roulette and Swanee Caps. Families are changed, lives are lost, and previous seasons of Fargo are referenced. Um, let's do our classic, Kaylin. Why is this the best? Um, well, one, uh, you just going over the recap, I uh, made me think that. Uh, this season probably has some of the most interesting and best names for any of the characters of any previous season. Uh, but more seriously, do you, feel like, I, do you feel like though that you remembered any of those names having seen it? Like um, I don't feel like I heard anyone call anyone by names except for the the like three of the main characters. Um, pro I definitely had to go back and look through all the names, but they are absolutely unique. You know, like take that Molly Salverson. You think you've got a unique name? Well, meet Ethel Rita uh, Smutney, you know, uh, as, you know, the main protagonist of this season. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and more seriously, um, I will say uh, the things that I liked about this season um, are it is, um, it's absolutely beautiful. I love period pieces, especially mid-century period pieces. Uh, and I think uh, the the costuming, the designs, the sets, all that look really great. And also, as you referenced in the synopsis, um, because uh, this season really does serve as almost like a direct prequel to the second season, the sort of comic book nerdy completist in me kind of like seeing like the origin story of certain characters. So I liked the sort of connective tissue uh, between uh, the two what I call the two prequel seasons. What about you? What makes this the best for you? So I think that a, a lot of Noah Hawley's, um, a lot of this work has been about the nature of violence and the repetition of conflict in society and how some of it can be related to social norms that seem like they're new, but they're just history rhyming. Or some of it is like, man's inherent nature. And I thought this season tried to make an interesting attempt at reflecting on why that occurs. And it's like, history repeats itself because people forget history. They don't actually, they never really study it. And so framing this or starting out the story structure by having it be this kind of like history report of uh, crime families in a local area and the fact that so much of the story is dominated by discussions about who gets to describe the winners and losers of any competition, I think gives us a, an interesting way of thinking about 
you know, how could this kind of thing keep happening over and over again? Um, so why do you think this is the worst? Um, well, going back to something you said about why this is the best, um, I will also uh, give some props to Noah Hawley and others who worked on the show about the attempt to uh, make, uh, if an inartful, but at least a, uh, a relevant point about race in America and about power in America. Um, I think uh, all the seasons of Fargo have been political in their own ways. We definitely talked about about the first season, uh, about you know uh, the idealization of small town America. Second season, actually having Ronald Reagan as a making a cameo, um, you know, uh, because of the time it was set. And then with this season, the points it makes about um, you know what it means to go from minority status to being considered part of the majority, and I think we see that. Uh, we're seeing that in modern day America. We definitely saw that, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, when you had uh, ethnic groups like the Italians and the Irish coming in and were originally seeing as others and eventually they sort of assimilated. And then we're starting to see that a little bit more, even if you look at the most recent election results, there are, are members of the Latino community, uh, which are incredibly diverse, that have starting to see themselves more in a majoritarian status which is why I think you um, um, saw uh, Donald Trump overperforming uh, with these communities when he clearly uh, used very racial, racial tropes uh, in, uh, in the 2016 elections. The, the interesting like, contrast there is, you know, one of the crime families is black and because of the racial history of the United States, slavery being uh, one of its original sins, uh, Jim Crow, all of that, um, uh, African-Americans uh, have never been able to be seen largely as part of, of, of the majority uh, in this country. And I, I think the show tries to make an interesting point there if it's inartful, if it's a little inartful. Um, to answer your question about why this is the worst, um, honestly, I think it's the casting and the acting. Um, it, it, there are so many ways that I would have try to improve this season. I hate saying that because I myself am not a TV creator. Uh, I don't work in this field, but, um, you know, whereas uh, in the first three seasons, um, Noah Hawley and others that worked in the show did such a great job of finding the right actors to fit the right roles. I felt like this was a season of like stunt casting um, that just didn't work in, in, in the, I think in the, the first, uh, uh, our, our podcast for the first season, uh, I compared Noah Hawley and Ryan Murphy, and I think I was being a little unfair there. I'm, I feel like comparing the two more this season makes a lot of sense. It's just utter stunt casting. Jason Schwartzman is, you know, a funny guy, but completely ill-fitting for this role. Chris Rock, again, funny guy, completely ill-fitting for this role. Um, I think the, the show lacked a moral center and it lacked a, um, a sort of a demonic devil character, or it had those characters, but they, they were just lacking compared to the archetype set in the earlier seasons. Why do you think yeah. this is the worst? I, I definitely think there is. This is the first of these of uh, Fargo where I've really thought I noticed the deficiency of acting, um, or I feel like the actor's choices 
made left me wanting more because I could see certain characters like you know even you know Chris Rock or Jason Schwartzman working out but we would need to tweak the characters some more I think the reason why I found this so frustrating was because the the story arc is too much of a circle that is you've got so you've got um what's the girl's name um Ethel Rita Ethel Rita yeah so she starts she's got this report then her parents are connected to Loy Cannon's mob and across the street from her is a woman who is working with um the Fada uh crime boss family the, the what's his name uh Josto uh yeah. sleeping with him and those two crime families are fighting with each other and to me it makes it such a small town it's there's there's not it doesn't seem like there's like di- the same kind of divergent paths that could cross at random intersections where you could get some cool character moments like you had with uh Malvo and uh Lou Lou Solverson um it it, it just seems too simple it's 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 everything is right there and i'm not confused or entertained by the conflict that's going on with the irony of that and i love that you made that that observation the irony is is in the earlier seasons they were set like you know in bemidji in fargo uh and i can't remember which town that they're mostly in in the third season but it's like basically like an exurb it feels like an exurb of minnesota st paul um but kansas city is a pretty big city, all things considered, compared yeah. to the first three seasons. And you've got these people basically living in the same like cul-de-sac. Um, and like, they're just like, sort of like crossing the street from one another. And it didn't feel like Kansas City. It just felt like like the like three like neighborhoods that are all like next to each other. Yeah, the fact that, you know, there's, there's some things that are kind of considered time wasting or they're they're a little self-indulgent when you've got cars driving from one place to another but it didn't seem like you know it, it often felt like those kind of things helped you realize how big a space was in this show um and here it you didn't have them as much and basically we felt like we were jumping between five or six houses and that's it um given that i think you and i both have a lot more problems with this season than prior ones. I want to spend the rest of our time kind of not trying to be super negative and down on it, but talking about how we might improve it. Um, so why don't we take some of the characters um, and talk about what you did, what you really felt was a problem with them, and maybe we can figure out how we might change them. So um, what's what is it with Loy Cannon that you think doesn't quite work? Um, from from an acting perspective? It feels like Chris Rock has like one setting as Loy. And it's it's very like, it's just kind of this like snarl that he has, this sort of like world weary, you know, um, like world weary, like look at the, uh, at like how like society and the world has sort of treated him. Whereas, like, if you cast someone like Chris Rock, you know, who is clearly a very funny guy, like, I don't know why they didn't kind of lean into some of that a little bit more. Like, use his comedic strength 
to give uh, the character a little bit more roundness. He was just incredibly flat. Anytime he was on the screen, I was like, I know what I'm going to get from the him. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, complexity there where I think, you know, if you're going to make him a main character, make him like, you know, kind of like a Shakespearean, like, you know, head of his, of his own kingdom, um, you know, why not, why not like, um, like focus in on some different facets of the character? I definitely thought there were a few scenes where I could see some real vision for him. I thought, you know, when his um, wife wants to go to the police station to pick up um, her son, who's just been arrested from the jazz club, and the her mother is there just constantly, mm-hmm, everything she's saying, and he's trying to, you know, tell her how things are. There were a few moments in that scene where I felt like, oh, I can see some real menace here that comes from the fact that he's incredibly intelligent and he has, he recognizes how he's kind of trapped in a particular system. Um, I will say though, just on a personal note for Chris Rock, it makes me think a lot about a character like Abraham Lincoln um, and how a lot of people kind of found it weird or surprising that um, it, Daniel Day-Lewis um, in Lincoln had such a high pitched voice because when you think of people who are powerful and you know kind of authoritative, we always give them a baritone kind of pitch in our minds, but there's a different way you have to structure that internal strength um, because Chris Rock's voice is just so distinctive and it is slightly higher pitched that you can't have him doing like any growling, threatening kind of like traditional mafioso type stuff, the way that the, the father Fada kind of had this heavy set uh, Italian classic, you know, uh, uh, godfather type uh, sentiment. Um, I will say, I wish that they made more of his choices smarter, um, or at least that they seemed like real, you know, decisions, because I thought that for his character, it felt like you know, you could have brought out the sadness of being told that you've lost your son, but the calculation of being a good mob boss in thinking about how the other side is trying to game it against you. Um, for me, that was like the first kind of real character moment where I thought, oh, I could kind of see why they might have him, but I still want more. I don't know. What do you think so about any of that? So um, the scene that you referred to um, where uh, he's you know, being kind of menacing towards his wife and even his mother or mother-in-law um, is like, again, I think that kind of just like goes back to the point I made, like he had one setting. The, but I will contradict myself a little bit where we got to see some of his intelligence is an early on scene where he talks about credit cards. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was like, oh, here's a guy that's trying to, in his own way, uh, legitimize his own business and find a, um, you know, a, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, a unique way of getting out of like the, you know, the kind of the bare bones criminal enterprise that he has. It's like, if I can do this, I can set my entire like family and my extended family in a way that like that will set them up. So they're not relying on bootlegging, stealing, gambling, you know, all the vices that one associates with, with crime syndicates. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, 
I couldn't help but contrast him with uh, Glenn Turman, who played uh, Dr. Senator. Glenn Turman is a phenomenal character actor. He was in A Different World in the late 80s and early 90s, the spinoff from The Cosby Show, uh, and he was in The Wire. And like he like just has such gravitas, and he's yeah. a guy that should have gotten more successful than he has been. I was so happy to see him in this season, and like like he can do the the humor, he can do the you know the the pathos, uh, and he brought such like you know energy on the screen that like anytime he and Chris Rock were together, it's like I just wanted to focus in on him. For sure, um, I did think that that. You know, it's a little bit weird for someone to, I, I understand, this is part of the interesting point inarticulately made that Noah Hawley does, but the whole credit card thing, I'm like, so, so this character came up with the idea, the term of financial instrument and credit cards, you know, like, I like, I, I like the idea of highlighting number one, that white corporate America will steal ideas from anyone and not properly give them credit. And two, this idea of going legit and how, if you look at history, how many super rich families and super wealthy um, uh, countries got that way because they did criminal stuff and then they made whatever it is that they were doing come out legit. But if it's done by black people it is it is still somehow like it will be never be forgivable but yeah. i hate that it was so on the nose it's like he invented credit cards i don't know why it's is it is it so because it's anachronistic is it because it's such a big idea and it seems so fully formed that it's hard yeah. to buy into i don't know but it, it I, made I, me it was so jarring i i kind of forgave it a little bit i i don't disagree with you i kind of forgave it because Ultimately, the uh, his fate is um, is him getting sucked up into like corporate America, essentially, and it's yeah. uh, I, it's uh, an interesting parallel to what happens to his son uh, in the second season, where like he thinks he has achieved some level of success, only to realize that like now he doesn't get to own what he thinks he's going to own. He just gets this like shitty office in a shitty building, uh, so to speak before he is unceremoniously stabbed by, um, uh, by Zelmer uh, in yeah. front of his family. Uh, but I, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. So let's contrast that with uh, uh, Jason Schwartzman as the new boss taking over after his father's death. Where do you think he, where do you think his casting went wrong? How might we fix him? Oh my God, uh, Jason Schwartzman, I mean, his, Anytime I see him, I think I'm watching a Wes Anderson film. So like, that's just my own yeah. like, bias. Um, and I like Wes Anderson, don't get me wrong here. But like, you know, it's a little bit twee. It's a little bit like ironic. It's a little winky winky. And like, he's clearly playing some mix of like Sonny and Fredo. You know, somebody who, you know, uh, is the heir to the empire, um, but isn't ready for it. Right. Um, and he's just like i don't know he's just a little too like smarmy and too meta for for me to take him even remotely seriously and maybe i wasn't supposed to take him seriously uh but i don't know i just did not enjoy him on the screen at all i think that his character 
um, really required having a better contrast with the brother. Um, what's the brother's name again? It's Ga- Gaetano. Uh, Gaetano. That those two needed to kind of act as basically a unit, which isn't to say that they agree with each other, but it felt like they didn't really have chemistry. It felt like both of them were doing different things in the scenes. Like, I think that Gaetano realizing that his brother is smart and him trying to work with his brother to be the muscle is an interesting character move, but it needs to happen a lot sooner. And you need to have, if you're going to have this, someone who's kind of known for playing these like ineffectual, weak, little petty men, you know, Jason Schwartzman, let's highlight that as a, as a feature of like, he keeps trying to run things and everyone recognizes that he is the boss, but people still constantly do things around him without his orders. And he gets more and more angry, but that like drives some form of deviousness where you can actually see, oh, he's clever. And if these two could actually work together, they'd be really formidable and dangerous. But there is no danger because it just feels like an ineffectual character that screams for no reason or isn't able to like have like real chemistry with anyone like i think of the the scene where he's telling the conciliary go to new york pay respects to the families there ask for guys and the conciliary asked him you know am i which am i supposed to do say everything's fine or ask for guys and jason schwartzman like freaks the fuck out And it was probably, you know, one of his better moments in it. But, you know, given all of the other stuff that's going on, you kind of wish that there was some nuance there. I don't know. What do you make of any of that? So I've been kind of thinking about what what you've been saying. And, you know, Noah Hawley has definitely used stunt casting in every one of his seasons. In season one, it was Key and Peele, um, you know, as the FBI agents. In season two, um, you know, it's kind of like, Ted Danson, sort of, but um, uh, um, who's the guy who played Ronald Reagan? I always forget his name. Um, oh, Bruce from, Campbell. Bruce Campbell. Um, and then, obviously, Ewan McGregor in season three. And, you know, you kind of raise your eyebrows when you first see them. And then they just sort of integrate into the show. They, yeah. they become a part of the tapestry. Um, that never happened with either Jason Schwartzman or Chris Rock. I just felt I was watching them as actors rather than them as characters. Um, and I don't think you can improve it unless you just find two different people, maybe two character actors, people who are a little bit less famous to sort of play these roles. Um, and I, 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 again, I hate going back to this comparison. It just feels like something that Ryan Murphy would do in especially some of the latter seasons of uh, American Horror Story. Yeah, I think of some of the other stunt, they're less stunt because I don't think they're as, they're as well known, but uh, uh, having uh, Rob McElhinney or whatever and Glenn Howerton, who were both in sunny in Philadelphia in some of the seasons. Um, you know, the way I think about it is that like there's a lot of comedic characters who, actors who come from really comedic backgrounds who you know, they got relatively limited screen time and to give Jason Schwartzman and I don't know the the actor who plays Gaetano is, but uh, so much space, um, they need to do a lot more. Whereas, you know, Ted Danson and um, uh, Ewan McGregor, 
they can act, you know, through anything. It's they'll they'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you think about the idea then of like reframing the show a little bit so it's not focused on these two mob bosses, but is instead focused on the conciliaries and the show is framed around them trying to negotiate and balance things and tamp down the instincts that um, these two larger than life characters have, um, you know, in order to maintain some form of peace and stability, even if they're I, rivals. I, I actually love that. And I think um, that's a really smart way of dealing with it because then you've got Glenn, Glenn Turman um, playing Dr. Senator as like the conciliary for the, uh, for the um, canon syndicate. And then uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but playing, you know, the older Italian conciliary, you know, trying to find, make some sense of this like insane situation. And they both are like, we have a mutually beneficial relationship if we can just keep our hot headed, you know, bosses from fucking shit up. Um, I, uh, I actually really like that a lot. Uh, I would also, again, I feel like I'm being really, really negative here and trying to figure out ways to do it. Um, You've got, uh, uh, is it Aretta? Is that how you pronounce her name? Or Orietta. Orietta. Orietta and Ethelreda, you know, sort of as like the, you know, the angel and devil character. It's like, you know, uh, it's a little Lorne Malvo versus, you know, uh, Molly Salverson. Um, it's uh, VM Varga versus Gloria Berger. Um, yeah. I do appreciate that uh, in 2020, especially, uh, Noah Hawley didn't make a cop be the sort of moral compass of the show, uh, that it was, you know, a young girl, a young biracial girl, a young intelligent biracial girl, but like, she just had, she had very little agency whenever I saw her on the screen. And, uh, Orietta was a character. If, if you are someone who hates Coen brother movies and you want to describe why you hate Coen brother movies, Orietta is the character that you would use to describe why you hate Coen Brother movies. She was such a weird caricature of a character. Like there was no depth to her in the same yeah. way that Lorne had depth, VM Varga had depth. Uh, and it, it just was like, I felt like I was watching a goddamn Looney Tunes cartoon half the it's time. A, it's a bit like um, a bad Anton Chigurh. Like this notion that you've got someone who is just constantly malicious as a part of their existence that they're they're racist they're bitter they're clearly constantly fake all the time they're extraordinarily murderous um and and manipulative but without any real motivation or backing there's i mean i know there's this idea that like okay she's a psychopath and how do you explain that but you do need something else for us to feel like this character is grounded in some way, because otherwise they're just this ridiculous caricature that's going around like a bull in a china shop, and it doesn't make for an interesting story. Because basically, the way they're acting feels random. Their their emotions don't guide them in any particular direction. She's the Joker essentially in every bad Batman story. Like, yeah. okay, she's an she's an agent of chaos, but I'm like, okay, cool if we're going to spend this much time with her, then to your point, we do need to see like what is driving her. So how would you, how would we bump up Ethel, uh, Ethel Rita? How do we make that character feel fuller? Do we make her, uh, cause I think they need to separate her from Orietta 
for longer. I think that those two should be acting as agents for a while on their own. And that maybe if at the end, because of her detective worker, because of something where she's like trying to help her family get out of this uh, debt that they have to the cannons, that she, you know, snoops into Orietta's place and steals something, it would feel more like she, uh, um, Ethelita has agency, that she's actually motivating the plot and, you know, that, that there isn't this kind of terrible coincidence because it's not the same kind of coincidence as like a lot of Coen Brothers films have where two people accidentally cross paths and you feel like they cross paths in a way that made sense for those characters. It just seems unnecessary. I don't know. Uh, I feel like I keep going back to this well, but I think if you find someone else to cast that character, because uh, the actress was fine, but she was a little bland in my opinion. Um, there wasn't a lot of dimension to her acting. And when you compare her to, you know, Gloria Berger, Molly Salverson, Lou Salverson, like you saw, um, you know, that they had, they had some uh, empathy, they had a little bit of uh, vulnerability. And, you know, I never got a sense that yeah, while she's like a 16 year old girl and she's like in over her head, I never felt, I never felt scared for her. You know, the same way I felt scared for Molly at times, um, or I felt scared for Gloria at times. Um, I was like, she's, she's got plot armor. Uh, and um, that's, that's, I think that's a problem with the writing and the dialogue. And it's a problem with her as an actress. So let's talk a little bit, um, maybe kind of combining character and plot a bit about the storyline of um, uh, uh, Deffy Wickware, um, who is trying to hunt down uh, Zelmer Roulette and Swanee Caps, um, who have escaped from prison and are hiding out at the Smutneys there. Uh, I believe that's um, Swanee's sister's place. Um, what do you what do you think of that story arc? Um, what do you think of the lesbian inclusion? Um, you know, without I don't think without a judgment, um, really, compared to a lot of the other characters that you know you heard every old school racist term, um, but really no one kind of cared that they were lesbians, and and um, you know the the Timothy Oliphant's death. What do you what do you think of all that? Well, I think Timothy Oliphant uh, is playing every like the same character in every role now, whether you're talking about Justified, uh, the season of The Mandalorian, uh, or the season of Fargo. It's like he's oh, yeah. a sort of like <laughs> the quirky lawman, you know. Uh, I he, did he, like he does the uh, he's got the uh, method of acting, uh, show up and get a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, but he's so interesting to watch that I almost don't mind it. I also liked the. Um, fact that they made him Mormon uh, because like at that time if he was Mormon and showed up in a place like Kansas City, Missouri like he was considered you know a dangerous minority himself um, and so like you know kind of playing up those aspects of it I think was kind of interesting I did like uh, uh, both those characters I did like Zelmer and Swanee quite a bit I just sort of enjoyed their um, you know interesting uh, relationship with one another. Uh, I like 
to your point that there wasn't, you know, real judgment on the fact that they were lovers, uh, or it was just one of those things that people didn't really talk about. And I think this is the first time in Fargo that we saw a, a queer relationship uh, by, you know, some, you know, not necessarily main characters, but very pivotal characters. Uh, I, I will say I kind of um, retched a little bit in the scene where they steal from uh, Loy and um, Swanee is definitely eating the poison pie and she's got all kinds oh. of stomach issues. I was like, okay, this is a, this is a, I don't need to see her throwing up on the money one more time. This is, <laughs> this is just too fucking much. Um, money is super absorbent. So if you ever throw yeah. up on your carpet, you can use just like $20 bills and just clean yeah. that up really quickly. But they were also both um, part of probably my favorite scene in the whole se season, which is definitely um, an homage to the Untouchables, uh, where you've got the shootout in the train station. Uh, I think there was like something really well done about like how all that happened. These are like, you know, they're like, uh, they're, they're Bonnie and Clyde, essentially, uh, 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 sort of placed within this, with this story. Um, and so I generally enjoyed them and I enjoyed both actors quite a bit. Yeah, see, I liked, I liked them both. I thought that, you know, they, they certainly had a lot of agency. They had a lot of character. And I thought that the, their behavior really matched their philosophy. The idea that they're outlaws, they're not criminals. They see that all these people are, they're either crooks or squares, that you're, you're obeying the rule, you always obey the rules. And if you obey the rules, then you're either good or bad within that rule system. But if you refuse the rule system, uh, you are not good or bad. You are, you are free. And I thought it was just an interesting idea because it reminded me a lot of something that was very popular in the decades before and even at this time uh, of just being a hobo, which wasn't specifically like being homeless. It was a lifestyle choice to kind of try and be a nomad in a world where um, people are supposed to settle and fix, follow under some rigid rules. Um, what do you think the, what do you think about the, the outlaw structure, you know, as far as the story goes and like just the way that they so, acted in general? So if there's no uh, alignment chart uh, for chaotic good, chaotic evil, quick, chaotic neutral, you know, I don't know where my brain goes because uh, that's how I view the world. Uh, but um, I, I think there's an interesting point to be made. And it's when you men mentioned Hobo, I immediately thought of like the first season of Mad Men. There was like the episode called The Hobo Code where you had somebody who um, had their own level of morality uh, and trying to sort of... Uh, live under it, uh, you know, during the Great Depression. Um, I, I definitely saw them as sort of chaotic, neutral characters. Uh, in a lot of ways, they, um, they were clearly, they're clearly bad guys, but were they really bad guys compared to, you know, the rest of the, the folks uh, in this world? Um, uh, there was a little something, a little kind of raising Arizona about them uh, to reference another like Coen Brothers film. And I, I, yeah. I sort of enjoyed, I enjoyed their inclusion and I enjoyed them completely just, you know, thumbing their nose at, uh, at like societal order and the rule structure that exists there. Um, to go back a little to um, Deffy, I thought with Timothy Oliphant, that's generally a lot of fun. Uh, it could have, it felt like it really could have worked. And yet for some reason it didn't vibe. 
I love the idea of the character. I just thought the execution wasn't fantastic. You know, you could have had this guy who was, who was a little bit harsher, a little bit less mellow, uh, you know, this kind of like free eighties California vibe about him. Uh, I, I would have, I would have liked a little bit more of a cheerful, hard nose, like the happy warrior uh, type mentality as he's leveraging um, that detective, um, uh, Otis, Otis Welf. Welf. Yeah, Otis, Otis just drove me nuts as a character because I think they were using his OCD-ness as a character trait rather than something that's just sort of something that he has. Because uh, other than that, like, I'm like, okay, he's in... He's a cop on the take. He's very corrupt. He's not corrupt. He's trying to, you know, um, redeem himself. Like, I just didn't care about him at all. That Even the scene where he gets killed by Gaetano and then he like, kind of, you know, reminisces about being a soldier and then, you know, the woman kind of singing to him. And I was like, this scene left me cold. I just didn't care. Yeah, the fact that the, the annoyance everyone had at his... Um, his OCD, I thought, you know, it feels like there would be something interesting here just about the way that society reflects on these kind of things, but he never really talks about it. They kind of have other people, you know, mention his story of being a landmine sweeper. And, you know, he talk, talks, he speaks about, you know, his wife leaving him, but um, there's none of it that's connected to um, how he feels about how people see him. There is some of it when it comes to corruption, but he's lying when he talks about it. So it, it's, yeah. it's just a placeholder for a character. It, it again needs something more where you've got it like the same way of Orietta. You need something for that character to feel more complete. That's like motivating them other than just being on the take. Yeah. Um, what changing tracks a little bit here. Um, you know, Noah Hawley has mentioned many times in interviews that he used uh, Jack Kirby's Fourth World as an inspiration for this season, specifically uh, where we see, you know, from some of the opening scenes of the first episode, where you have these rival families exchanging sons uh, to create some kind of uh, uh, some level of peace. Um, and this was like, you know, in the comics you had um, uh Dark side, who's the you know main tyrant of Apocalypse, and High Father, who's the ruler of New Genesis. They trade sons, Orion and Mister Miracle, respectively. Um, do you think that element of the show worked for you, specifically in the treatment of uh, of Rabbi Milligan, uh, who ended up becoming kind of a his own sort of moral center within this amoral universe? I. Uh, this is an idea that I really liked, but I did not feel got enough of a fair shake. And I think I liked Rabbi. Um, I think that having that character is a very smart way. It, you, you got so much character development out of what were, you know, 10 minutes of video that this is a person who is always going to be an outsider and he is motivated by looking, looking after the other person who's gotten in his position. Um, I think that his, the, the real payoff that we would have seen for him would have been in the black and white episode um, in episode nine. And 
I just think that there was so much about his character that kind of seemed driven by the, if I'm not, if I, if I don't come back, I'm dead or in jail is basically the only thing I know about him. It, yeah. it becomes too limited when he becomes just a protector and not someone else with his own dreams and his own, you know, you know, kind of wants. What do you think? What did you think of their relationship? It was flat to me. Um, and gosh, I feel like I keep going back to this. I, and I think it's the, it's the casting decisions that uh, the casting director made uh, on, on this. Like um, the character of Rabbi could have been very fascinating, but he was very limited in like the, uh, the lack of range the actor had. Or and or the lack of like you know you know background that he had and the depth that the care that the plot gave him. Same I'm way, put that more um, on dialogue than on the actor because I thought the actor did a fine job. He just did not have much to say. That it might be like, right. Um, rich. That, that, that might. And then and then the character of Satchel, who like we all knew he was ultimately going to become Mike Milligan in the second season of Fargo, so much so that. Um, uh, God, this season drives me nuts. Where like the sort of uh, at the end of the episode, the 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 mid credit sequence shows the actor who played Milligan in the second season in the car, uh, you know, being driven by his body man. Um, it's like, oh, well, we're now we're supposed to make the connection between the two. It's like, well, yeah, no fucking shit. Like, I mean, like you you basically spelled it out for us, and now you're showing us something that we didn't need to see. But Satchel, again, like this is a guy who's going to end up becoming like a very fascinating pivotal character in in the second season. Like nothing this kid does uh, shows me that he's going to end up becoming this this person. Um, and it just drives me it just drives me absolutely nuts that like they wanted to show this connection between these two seasons, between what a character is and what a character becomes, and they don't give us enough to like. Uh, uh, they don't give us enough to show that transformation. Um, going back a little bit, um, do you think there were any other major fourth world parallels or, or inclusions? Or is it really just, this is kind of a fun foundational plot? Um, I think, I think it's the, probably the foundational plot here. Um, you can make a stretch of an argument of how um, New Genesis sort of, um, which is the, basically the good planet in Jack Kirby's fourth world, uh, they're much more sort of family oriented and Apocalypse is much more the sort of like dark side of industry, pardon the pun there. Um, it's more about like how um, um, Everything is about, you know, the ends justify the means. Uh, and it even looks like, you know, the hellscape of the Industrial Revolution when you, when you read the comics, which is ultimately what ends up happening with these families, where you're the conciliary of the, uh, the, the Fata family basically saying, families fuck everything up. We've got to make turn this more into a business. But when you turn it into more of a business, you depersonalize everything, uh, which is, I think, an interesting indictment about the corporatization of America. Um, yeah. No, I think I think I the, I like the industrial com, com, comparison because uh, they have that the conciliary talking to Loy and he says, "I'm renegotiating the terms of the deal, 
you could kill me, but you're not really killing me because there's going to be another guy who's here and then another right. guy and then another guy. And he's like, now you see it. And the way he describes it, it's almost like a conveyor belt of, of crime that it's just going to, as long as the machine can exist, a machine will exist there. Um, and you've got to learn your place relative to it. Yeah. So a big aspect about all the seasons uh, has been the mystical, magical, semi-religious elements. Um, in season one, we had a lot of the God parallels with the, um, the, the, the trials of Moses. And then in season two, it was UFOs. In season three, it was werewolves, I believe. Wait, no, it was season three. Um, <laughs> The wandering Jew. Oh, yes. Uh, and then in this season, it is ghosts, um, apparitions. What did you think about that as a choice to include? Um, how do you think it worked thematically or plot-wise? It didn't. Um, I, I felt it was super tacked on um, and it completely took me out of the show in the same way that the UFO in the second season, which really shouldn't have worked, but it just did. It was just this, like, this was something that just existed in this universe. And, you know, when I was watching the second season, I was like, what the fuck, what the fuck? And what made it work for me is when, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, um, what's the name of the couple in season two? Um, uh, the, yes, uh, Peggy, uh, the blue, Blumenthal's, Blumenthal's? Whatever. Bumquist? Blumquist. Bumquist. Yeah. Bumquist, yes. Yeah. When Peggy, you know, turns to her husband and, and he's like, what, what the fuck is that? She goes, oh, honey, it's just a UFO. Don't worry about it. And it's oh, like, yeah. oh my God. I just <laughs> loved how matter of fact it was. Whereas like the, the few times we saw these apparitions, basically like the manifestations of the Grim Reaper in my head or like death or whatever. I was like, this is just, I don't know. It, it just feels super tacked on. We saw it in the train station sequence, which I actually really, I like that sequence overall, but like when death is all around, this apparition comes up. When uh, Orietta like is about to, attempting to kill uh, Ethelreda with the injection, like we see this coming up again. And it just was like- We also had it just, at the, um, when they're cleaning the money, uh, literally laundering the money uh, while um, Zelmar was on the, bed feeling sick um and then there's a few other times where it appears as well um i think it's because the ufo it feels like it's it's adjacent to the story a little bit it's on the periphery and the ghosts in this are so present they are affecting every character they're always there and they're also bringing with them a different style of story which is like is this supposed to be a horror story like, where, at what point do we, are we just mashing things on from different genres or trying to take elements of different genres and stitching them in appropriately? Because I, I think that a ghost is a excellent, excellent mystical element to include in this season in particular um, because of the notion of like being haunted by your sins the fact that there are so many stories about ghosts where, you know, they've got to, that things have to be made right by them. 
And the history of America is wronging people, killing them, and not doing right by them. And there's a lot of potential here to explore what those ghosts are um, or what they could mean more symbolically than just yeah. having like some slight scary moments. Your explanation, if that was, you know, that was a rationale behind uh, the ghosts based on your explanation, I would have loved it a lot more. It just felt very, very tacked on in this season. It felt, this, this season felt both overstuffed and undercooked at the same time, yeah. uh, which is really, it's kind of an amazing feat to pull off uh, at how, like how many things they got wrong that I'm almost marveling at like, like how, how this went. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about that. I mean, that's a, I do like the way of putting it because I've talked a little bit already about moving things around and how you could shift different storylines. But for me, one of the, the things that was the most striking was how in general, there's this fear of war for each of the mobsters or for members in each of the mobs because they know that bodies are gonna start stacking up and that means that lives are gonna be lost. And if you've been watching any of these shows, I mean, you know that bodies are gonna stack up and there's kind of a distance you can have from the consequences that any particular person might face in a mob war. And they have certain decisions that they highlighted and took so long showing and then other ones which like, and they should have sped those up and other ones which like just rushed through. Like they had a, a newspaper montage of like bodies just piling up everywhere. And you kind of feel like, well, that seems like a lot of the important thing that we're supposed to be afraid of. That's supposed to be kind of horrifying. And it's just so rushed through. Yeah. Um, so, do you think, uh, I don't know if they've said if there's going to be a fifth season. Um, if there is a fifth season, what do you think the focus should be? Um, would you like a fifth season or do you think, you know, it'd be fine to just cap it at four? Um, yeah, I think it all kind of depends on if there's a, a compelling reason to have fifth season. I mean, there was a three-year gap between seasons three and four. Whereas, you know, between seasons one and two, it was a one-year gap, like normal seasons, seasons two and seasons three, there was a two-year gap. Um, it, it just all depends on whether there's an interesting story to be told here. And if there's something I would like to see, gosh, um, I, I don't think I want another prequel season. I think I want something that's set forth a little bit past where season three took place, which correct me if I'm wrong, was 2010, 2011. And yeah. then, you know, they, they jumped a few years after that uh, towards the coda of the season. Uh, but something that's maybe slightly a little bit more modern. Um, and, you know, I, I think I would like to see if Holly is capable of some new tricks and some new way techniques of telling, uh, you know, kind of a like a noir story in, uh, in, mid, in a Midwestern setting. Because what I'm afraid of is uh, he is capable of, um, of telling a couple of different types of stories. He's got some interesting narrative tricks, but then after that, he just sort of, it turns into a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. Um, we've talked on podcasts before about Legion. We, you know, we reviewed seasons two and three 
uh, on podcast, and they were a pale comparison to the you know absolutely brilliant first season uh, because I just felt he ran out of things to say, in it, but he just wanted to use his narrative tricks that he had picked up to be able to tell some you know some quirkier ways of telling them. It's all style and no substance. So uh, I, I think it's it's an open question whether I would like to see one and what the season should be. What about you? Yeah, I think that, you know, given my rewatch of season three and liking it a lot more, and I'm going to rewatch this at some point, and maybe there's going to be more to it that I'll like upon later viewing. I think he has earned enough credit as a director and writer that if he thought he had an idea for um, a season five, then I think it would be worth executing. Um, especially if they give it, you know, more time. You know, if you want to take a few years to figure out what you'd like to do, maybe it's set more recently, or maybe it's set in any of the many other decades it could be. The way I would probably th- think about framing it is the the story of Fargo like happens in Brainerd. Uh, the, the story of this season in Fargo happens in Kansas City. Like you could pick anywhere in the Midwest, have someone drive to Fargo at one point for something and then they drive back and that's it. You don't really need to be in this tight same area. So even if you like moved up to uh, the Canadian border, Um, or you move further west toward Colorado. I think there's a lot of ways that you can still set the same style of story, but by giving us a slightly different environment um, that allows more room to explore different Western and noir elements. I don't know what the mystical thing I would want is, maybe uh, Frankenstein's monster, Um, (laughs) or I could go with Dracula. Um, Any last thoughts? Um, I'm glad this season existed. Uh, I think, you know, it's, I, I've been incredibly negative and down on this season on this podcast, but, you know, it definitely, there's a lot of core elements that I'm glad were brought up in this season. I think, um, you know, talking about the industrialization, the corporatization of America, bringing up some of the, the racial aspects of, um, of, of, what it means to be an American and whether you feel you can assimilate or you always feel like you're other. Um, I think we're absolutely fascinating. I like the fact that the moral center of the show wasn't a police officer uh, because, yeah. you know, like I, I'm like, okay, we're done with that. Um, I just wish um, they had recast some of the pivotal roles. They had worked on the dialogue. Um, you know, I wish that it didn't just feel super derivative of previous better seasons or even other works that it was trying to riff off of. Yeah, I think that one thing that's important to keep in mind about this, you know, I was disappointed by how the whole show worked, but in each episode, there was definitely something I really enjoyed and I found fascinating. And the bar now isn't, the bar isn't you have to do season one of Fargo every season of your TV show. Like season four of Fargo is still better than a whole lot of TV. Um, sure. There's the, probably some of the, the fact that it's hard to come up with complicated plots again and again 
makes the case that maybe we shouldn't have a season five. Um, and I also think that we probably, even though I, I'm glad that the moral center isn't a police officer, we probably did need some good detective work there. Uh, we, you know, that's a, that's an important part of Fargo uh, is For someone sure. doing some sleuthing and, and Ethel Rita was the character, I think, to take up that mantle, but they never really fleshed that out. Yeah. Overall, I will, uh, go- I, gorgeous. I think it looked it, great. Oh, it looked absolutely stunning. Um, there were some scenes I just wanted to pause and like frame and put up on my wall or, you know, take to a museum. Um, you know, w- one last thing I'll say, um, you know, I was talking to a friend uh, who liked the season a lot more than we did. Uh, and he said that, you know, he found it better than season three. And I was thinking about that. And I think the, the difference here is season three was telling a familiar story um, and the familiarity, I think, you know, bred some contempt by the viewers, but it ended up telling, I think, a pretty strong story, at, you know, by the, by, by the time we got to the end of the season. Season four, I, I appreciated the ambition of what it was trying to do, but the execution fell flat. So it's like, do you, you know, should the reach exceed its grasp or not? Uh, should you like aim high and fail or aim a little bit lower and succeed? Uh, I think, um, I think there's an interesting question or an interesting discussion there for another time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, it definitely felt simpler um, than I think a lot of the other seasons did. And maybe because we are such big Coen Brothers fans and we, I think we generally like Noah Hawley a lot, uh, you set up a different bar of expectations for how the story should work out. Um, well, with that, um, we've been uh, Homo Superior and this has been our Secret Records of season four of Fargo. Uh, You can catch our regular episodes that come out every Friday. Uh, Thanks for listening.